rage? What is rage? It can't just be stuck in a soup somewhere in a swampy mess, can it? No, it's not. Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, and we are moving on. We are in Inferno, Canto 8, lines 7 through 130. Uh, we're going to actually go back to the first line of Canto 8 and go to line 30 in this episode. If you don't know this podcast, we are walking slowly with the Pilgrim Dante across what I say is the greatest work to date of Western literature, the comedy. And we have come all the way up to this moment in which we are amongst the wrathful in hell. So I'm going to go back and start where we were in the last episode with the first line of Canto 8 and then continue on out to the 30th line and the first couple scenes in this, what I think is the new Canto structure. Continuing on, I say that well before we got to the foot of that high tower, our eyes had already been directed toward its top, drawn by two flames that flickered up there, and another that answered from so far away our eyes could barely make it out. Turning to that sea of all that can be known, I said, What's this one saying? And what does that other fire respond? And who are the ones who made it? And he to me, You can already see over the greasy waters what we're expecting if the miasma from the swamp doesn't hide it from you. No bow shot an arrow that flew through the air so fast as the little boat I saw coming toward us, skimming along on the water under the hand of a single oarsman who hollered, Now I've got you, foul soul. Flagius, Flagius, you shout for no use, said my leader. In this instance, you will have us no longer than the time it takes to cross over this swamp. Like one who learns he's been taken in by a big scheme and is eaten up with resentment, so is Flagius with his trapped rage. My leader stepped down into the boat, and he made me step in with him. And only when I did, did the boat seem to be laden. As soon as my leader and I were on board, the ancient prow caught deeper in the water, more than it did when it transported others. All right, a new passage, a new start, at least so I take it, to the poem itself. Let me say that the interpretation from last time that this is a new start is, in fact, controversial. And one of the great things about my doing a podcast like this, I don't really have any dog in this hunt. I'm not going to get bound up that mine is somehow the right interpretation. It's very easy to do this, especially in literary studies, to get bound up in your own interpretation. And I want to admit right up front that the idea that there has been a break and a restart is not necessarily the truth, although it's my interpretation. It was Boccaccio's interpretation. It's a lot of people's interpretation. It's become popular these days. But I should point out that Professor Barolini at Columbia is stridently opposed to this interpretation. She does not believe that there is any textual evidence to suggest that in any way there has been a break in the poem. 
what she claims is going all the way back to Canto 7, where we were when we came first to the to the Wrathful, and then continuing on here into Canto 8, and all the way into Canto 9, we're developing something that's new to the poem. We're developing a much more complex through story. That is, a longer narrative that's overlapping over cantos. It's passing beyond canto breaks. And this much longer through story doesn't indicate that anything's been broken here. Rather, it indicates Dante's developing art. I still think there's a break here, but I do love this idea of a more complex through story. And I'm going to pick that up and use it because I think that's exactly what we're about to see happen. What happens in cantos 8 and in cantos 9 is we do indeed get a much bigger narrative arc. The scene we're about to descend to starts here and is going to last all the way into Canto 9 when it resolves and the Pilgrim and Virgil start to move again. Well, they're going to move a little bit here, but really start to move again downhill. And in fact, this longer narrative arc has interpolated events in it. In other words, it's like uh, there's a bigger story here with little stories inside of it. And this passage today is the first little story, the arrival of Phlegus and the re-seeing of what's going on here at these towers. And there's more than one tower and they're flickering back and forth to each other. So I'm going to use part of what Barolini says, but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt that she's a great scholar, a far more learned scholar about Dante than I am. And I just want to present that, that she is stridently opposed to any notion of a break in Inferno here. She does not take that continuing on as I did as indicative of somehow the poem is restarting. But I am going to say, I do think there is a larger narrative with smaller insert storylines inside of it. Okay, so let's start through the passage. Let's skip over those first six lines that we did last time about coming to the towers again. And let's just look what happens once they're standing there. The poem says, turning to that sea of all things that can be known. That's a Big statement for Virgil. Remember I told you that Virgil was going to be Virgil in all of Virgil'sness. But the sea, the sea, the ocean of all things that can be known, that's an, starting to have an understanding of Virgil more than just a petulant poet at war with his literary father. <laughs> Virgil seems to be becoming a repository of something, and this will continue to grow. Even though I think Virgil is still in tow with his Virgilness, and in fact, these two cantos are going to show us that Virgil is not necessarily the most reliable guide, even so, the reliability of his guideship may not discount the fount of knowledge that he is. And that tension is now going to start to become more and more pronounced. It'll continue to be pronounced all the way up into the middle of Purgatorio. So Dante asks a question. He says, what's this one saying? What's this light saying? And what does the other fire respond? And who are the ones who made it? I take it that that's a question not about the creator, not about God, but who set up this system of these towers that appear to be signaling back and forth from each other? And let's stop here because here's an interpretive problem. Why do they signal? 
Why do these towers need to exist? After all, didn't we know from Minos that, you know, he wrapped, Minos wrapped his tail around himself, and then the sinner went, wow, flying off the edge and down to the circle of hell that that person, man or woman, belongs in. What happens here? Why does there need to be signals across this? Wouldn't the wrathful just fall into this circle, into this swampy miasma that they're standing on the bank of? I mean, why do they need to, to signal each other? It may be that they signal each other for the souls that escape. After all, later in the passage, when Phlegas, we'll talk about him in a minute, when Phlegas shows up, he seems to deflate, right? He says like one who learns he's been taken in by a big scheme. He seems to deflate. Was he hoping to catch a soul who escapes out of this swamp of wrath? Interesting problem, because it would be the first time we would see that souls could actually escape their punishment and have to be put back in it. It's not ever actually going to be followed up on very much as in, in terms of Inferno, other than Virgil, who has escaped Limbo to be the guide of this journey. There's a little interpretive nugget I threw at you. Why these towers exist and what they're signaling to each other seems a little strange, but it does seem very eerie to me, very nightmarish. I hope you feel the strangeness of it. Let me also say that it's interesting to me that right here, when Dante asks, the pilgrim asks, what's this one say and what does that other fire respond and who are the ones who made it? It strikes me that right here, we have a moment of interpretation. What's going to happen in these cantos is difficult, and the interpretive architecture of what's about to happen in cantos 8 and 9 gets thick and difficult at times, and the poet's even going to step out and call our attention to it on down the line. And it's interesting that all of this starts with, well, an allegory of reading or a representation of reading or a representation of interpreting what's happening. I know no one's reading text, but they're reading the signals the way you do semaphore. And Dante's trying to figure out what these signals are saying to each other across this miasma. And interestingly, Cantas 8 and 9, open with a question of interpretation. I say reading because that's technically how you say it in literary studies, but a question of interpretation and what does it all mean and who are the ones who made it as if we can pierce back behind what's going on here and find who are the ones doing this and that will explain something. Intriguing in terms of piercing the curtain on the narrative itself to the poet behind it. All right. Moving on. Virgil says, you could only see over the greasy waters what you're expecting if the miasma from the swamp doesn't hide it from you. And then like a arrow shot out of a bow, this little boat, this pipsqueak boat, this tiny little boat comes flying at them. Let's stop and talk about the boat for a second. I think it it's important to notice that this is a little boat. It's a, it's, a, it's a little, tiny, little boat that's coming at them, as opposed, and I think this is what's important, to Karen's big boat that carries lots of souls. And maybe that 
helps us see this passage, that this is not a boat that's used the way Karen's is. Karen's has to tra- transport these giant hordes of people off across Acarante. This boat, maybe it is. It picks up the stragglers or the people trying to get out of the swamp. It's a little boat that comes at them, and it's coming very fast over the water. This seems very important for later in the passage, that this boat is shooting across the water like an arrow out of a boat, skimming right on top of the water under the hand of a single oarsman who screams out, Now I've got you, foul soul. Who is this oarsman? Phlegas. Let's talk about that. Phlegas is a mythic figure. He's the son of Mars, and he appears in both the Aeneid and in Stasius's Thebiad. He's a character in both of these works that especially the Stasius part, will become more important later on. But he's in the Aeneid too. And he's condemned, this figure, I guess, for setting fire to Apollo's shrine or temple at Delphi. He's condemned to punishment for setting fire to this shrine out of an act of kind of rage. Dante has picked him up, and that's really all there is to him in Stasius and Virgil, but Dante's picked him up and made him a character, not just a passive recipient of a just punishment of rage burning down the temple, but instead an actual character who ferries this boat back and forth over this swamp, this extraordinarily murky and mucky place. And Dante gives him voice gives him action, gives him maybe a purpose, especially if we accept the idea of Phlegius as picking up the stragglers who are trying to escape. Virgil seems to put him down instantly. Phlegius, Phlegius, you shout for no use in this instance. In other words, this is kind of a little bit of that Virgilian incantation of, you know, this is willed, where what is willed is what is done, except it's foreshortened a bit. There's no reason to do this, Phlegius. You will have us no longer than the time it takes to cross over the swamp. Let me just stop here and make a comment about Phlegius and what Dante's done to him and how it works in the comedy. Dante is not, and this is going to become a terribly (laughs) controversial thing to say, Dante the poet is not somehow a pre-Renaissance figure. I realize I've been saying that we're on the cusp of the Renaissance, that we're just coming out of high Middle Ages stuff into the Renaissance, and there is truth to that. But there's another way to think about Dante, not just in terms of Renaissance and Romanticism and the periodization of Western literature and art. Think of Dante this way. Dante sits on the bridge between the classical world and the modern world. Behind him lie the classical figures, and I would count not only the great Roman poets like Virgil, not only the great uh, figures like Horace and Lucan out of literary traditions, I would also count the church fathers, even Augustine in that. They stand back in the classical world. Ahead of Dante, which of course he can't see, lies our world. And I would argue that it's it's interesting to talk about Renaissance and neoclassicism and Romanticism and all that, but honestly, what we're looking at here, I think in the long view, is the classical world and the modern world. And Dante sits right 
on that junction. And I think right here with Phlegas, with the arrival of this figure out of Stasius and the Aeneid, and yet we're in hell, and yet we're bridging kind of classical learning, a relatively obscure figure from classical literature, and we're putting him up in this poem, and in fact the pilgrim's reactions are much more human, are much more emotional, everything is getting more fraught in the poem itself, which leads us kind of toward the modern world and its outlook, really honestly, I think you can see it right here in this passage. I think you can see the balance between the classical world and the modern world. Not that Dante's conscious of that. Of course he doesn't know he's on the cusp of the modern world or he stands between them. But you can see this move away from classical figures toward more humanistic thinking, toward here Dante is much more centered in his emotions. And in fact, I think from now on out, we're going to discover that the pilgrim is much more centered in his own self-consciousness as we go forward. It's one of the reasons that I see a break here. And poor Phlegas, he's defeated, he's let go, he's consumed in his rage, trapped in his rage. He, He can't make quite sense of this, except he knows he has to just take them across the swamp. But nonetheless, He is himself an obscure figure out of classicism set down in this poem, which is an incredibly Christian poem. And rather than thinking of it as classical versus Christian, you can also think about it as classical versus modern. And Dante's standing right here on the brink between the two, asking very modern questions about reading and interpretation, feeling very modern feelings that get foregrounded in the text, And at the same time, the text is reaching backwards toward the classical world. That might be an even more interesting way to think about Dante than as a figure that bridges the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Let's finish the passage. Virgil steps down into the boat. He made me step in with him, the text says. And only when I did... Did the boat seem to be laden? You know I'm going to love this. This is the first time a boat sinks. Dante is clearly corporeal. Remember I said back with Karen's boat and when Dante falls asleep there on the shore and I said later on he's going to step in a boat and it's going to work that his physicality makes the boat lower into the water. But here in Karen, he just seems to skip over the problem. Here we are. The boat is laden. We are a long way away from that moment in which the pilgrim passed over the little brook in limbo as if it was dry ground with the great poets. In fact, what happens to in, in as far as I can see is that the poem has now decided undoubtedly that Dante is corporeal, and that the question of his physicality, his corporeality, must in fact be addressed. And in fact, this strikes me as so important that the poem devotes yet another three-line tercet to it. It says, my leader stepped down into the boat. You made me step in with them, and only when I did did the boat seem to be laden. That's one three-line bit. And then it goes on. As soon as my leader and I were on board, the ancient prow cut deeper in the water more than it did when it transported others. There's a second tercet there to make it clear that the 
prow is pushing down into the water. This does two things for me. As I said, it seems now that Dante is not looking back. There's not going to be any more of this passing over the water as on dry ground. We're just going to go forward that our pilgrim is in the body, that he's a physicality in the underworld, and this physicality will be increasingly remarked as the poem goes forward. This says to me that there's been a change from the previous seven cantos. Professor Barolini would disagree heartily. And two, for me, this bit that the prow sinks into the water, that the boat sinks in when Dante steps in it, this says to me that this is not a dream poem. This is not a dream vision. It was a little bit of a dream vision back in limbo, crossing over the brook as on dry land, walking on the water. Mm, Then I could say, I don't know, is this poem really taking place or not? This strikes me here at the end of the passage we read today as a reality claim. The prow sinks in. And just in case you missed it, I'm going to restate it. So you really hear it. In fact, the truth of the matter is the poem is going to begin to make more and more, hmm, for lack of a better word, reality claims. This really happened. I didn't dream this. I'm not making it up. This is what I really saw. These are the people who are really there. This is how it really goes down. All of that says to me that our poet says to me, this is an interpretive stance, subject to to all kinds of disagreement, says to me that our poet is now much more comfortable with the poem, much more comfortable with just making his claims about his own experience, about what's gone on. And because of that comfort of letting this, come on, this surely fictional journey take on the claims of reality, we are looking right in the lens of the modern world. See, this is my classical modern thing. We're looking right in the lens of the modern world because that's the thing, right? By the time we get up to Portrait of a Lady or Vanity Fair or The Great Gatsby or (laughs) name it, a great piece of literature, the claim is that the fictionality does not negate the reality claim underneath the text. This is the truth in Balzac, even when the narrator has to step forward and explain the morality of the situation to us in a Balzac novel. Nonetheless, in those novels, the fictionality and the reality claims are running mm, simultaneously, and they're not negating each other. And it strikes me, and it seems like a long, involved point, but it strikes me that that's exactly what's going on here. Do I think Dante walked across the known universe? No. Do I think that people who read this poem think that Dante walked across the known universe? Probably not. Do I think the poem is going to claim that its journey, that the narrative itself is real? Yes, without a doubt. And we're starting. We're starting to make the reality claims. Back when we walked on water in limbo, not sure. Not sure we're making reality claims right there. Now it strikes me that the poet is comfortable enough with his voice, comfortable enough with what's going to happen, comfortable enough with the poetic structure itself, that suddenly now we're starting to expand. And let me just say, we just did 30 lines in a circle of hell in which we didn't see any of the damned. That's because the story is slowing down. The story is, is out of its fast pace. 
it has slowed down, and now we just have this scene set of a guy standing there, towers, flames, boats, phlegus, stepping in, prow going down. It's, do you feel the more leisurely pace that suddenly hit us? It's much more centered on storytelling rather than point making. It had been getting very, very, for lack of a better word, discursive, making its points. Now it strikes me, starting here and in this passage, we start to see a story unfolding. And that's one of the things that's amazing about the comedy. That's one of the reasons it's lasted. In fact, it may be the reason it's lasted is because ultimately it's a story. If we were to go to other people's works from this same time period, let's go to Latini's works. If we were to go to other people's works like Brunetto Latini's, we do get a story, but we get so much more, so many digressions in every direction about language and theology. And these digressions enter the text. They, they take over the text in pieces of it. But Dante here in comedy is putting all of that, subsuming it, make it subsuming it, making it subject to story. And that making all of this encyclopedic knowledge of the universe, which we'll ultimately get through across comedy, making it subservient to the story itself is what has made the comedy last. It is. It's what he's learned from Virgil. It's what he's learned how to do. Take the story and let it be the primary focus and all else, the founding of Rome, <laughs> all of your political commentary, all of your love of Augustus, Caesar, Virgil, all that, let it sit under the text and let the story tell itself. And this passage is a grand example. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you'll subscribe, rate it. Oh, thanks for the ratings. I see the ratings on Apple Podcasts, and thank you for your generosity. I very much appreciate it. I wish there was a way on Apple that I could connect with you and thank you individually. Unfortunately, I can't, but I can say you can connect with me on social media. Look for the group, Walking with Dante, on Facebook or just hashtag Walking with Dante on Twitter. We can connect. You follow me. I'll follow you. You hashtag it. I'll know you're doing it for that reason. I'll follow you. And we can continue to talk about Dante and the comedy and the poetry and the pilgrim and the developing notions or not of the story itself for as long as you want. And I will see you back here on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.